Welcome to the next report, Unix and Overlook Pop Culture, our latest podcast. I'm Thomas. I'm Mitchell Brown. And I'm Zach Dotson. And we are now at 75 likes, ladies and gentlemen, as Woo-hoo! of this podcast. <laughs> and so the topic that we're covering today is it's something that you, know, you kind of sit back and let happen first and see what unfolds and I'm pretty sure people know about Egypt by now and the turmoil that they're experiencing at the moment. Morsi stepping down, which the more I'm reading on this, the less surprised I'm getting at this point. Uh, gentlemen, who who wants to pick up this ball and run with it? Since Zach has done most of the research, I'll go ahead and let him start. Yeah, okay. um, uh, as... A lot of you are very well aware of now, Mohamed Morsi, the former president of Egypt, the first democratically elected uh, president coming out of the Arab Spring, has now been ousted by the military of Egypt. Um, last week, Mohamed Morsi was issued an ultimatum by General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the current commander of the Egyptian military. Um, the general told Morsi that he had... 48 hours to quell um, the continuing protests that became now national protests in Egypt or share power. And without meeting those conditions, um, the general, as well as the Egyptian military, had no other choice but to overthrow Mohamed Morsi. Now what we're having is, in Egypt, uh, we have currently a suspended constitution um, in Egypt. We now have a technocratic government. Um, now led by the uh, SCC, or the Supreme Constitutional Court uh, leader. And also what we have is um, that current government um, wanting to progress forward. And they try to um, establish an interim prime minister, El Baradei. A lot of you may be familiar with him with his 2005 work with the United Nations on atomic energy. Um, he was set to be the interim prime minister, and because of a lot of backlash from um, a lot of the Muslim Brotherhood, as well as the ultra-conservative Egyptian parties like the Salafis in Egypt, um, El Baradei is currently not the interim prime minister. And so, as a result of all of this, um, still massive national protest, a spiraling economic situation in Egypt, and no real functioning government, or a roadmap for elections, or a time frame of when those would possibly be. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll take it over to Mitchell here. Mitchell, what are your thoughts on the continuing um, turmoil of Egypt? Well, I think when you talk, well, if we look historically, any type of great instability, it creates an opportunity, it creates a vacuum. And an unfulfilled, an unfilled vacuum 
creates an opportunity for an out of the out of the fire in the frying pan situation. And uh, you know, if you look at uh, Germany prior to the rise of Hitler, and uh, how Germany had to take all the blame for World War One, and how they were affected by the depression, those depressed economic conditions paved the way for the rise of the Fuhrer. If you look at uh, Iran. Because I, I really think about, I'm, I'm assuming that both you guys are familiar with the Iranian Revolution of 79, yes. right? Yes. And how much of, how much shades of that do you see in this? Because 79 in Iran, that was a game changer. That changed the paradigm of Iran. That changed the dynamics of the Middle East. So uh, you, you could really, I think it could be argued that uh, with the with uh, the rise of Ayatollah Khomeini and Iran becoming a theocracy in '79, that becomes the birth of modern Islamic fundamentalism. So, what 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 parallels can we are, do we see between '79 and Iran and the modern turmoil in Egypt? Well, I think what we're seeing in the Middle East, at least what was brought into the fold in the Arab Spring, is the question of whether the Middle East can fully embrace democracy and what level do traditional cultural beliefs um, that are present within Islam can be folded into the national political frameworks. In Egypt in particular, what we're seeing is kind of a backsliding of um, Islamist uh, political ideology. We're seeing... Backsliding um, as subsiding? Yeah, as, as it is subsiding. Uh, Mohammed Morsi was one of the prime movers and shakers within the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood has had a long tradition of trying to promote Sharia law within Egypt, and what we saw over this past two weeks within Egypt is tens of thousands of people coming out speaking directly against Muhammad Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood, and the political ideology in which they're trying to propose. So I, I, I think we're going to see more um, more of a nation that is more privy to listening to the United States and the West than what we had with the Ayatollah Khomeini coming into power and, and speaking directly against the United States and its interests. Um, and the thing to keep in mind here is, yeah, there's some parallels, but there's a big, big difference between what happened with the Mossadegh and Iran to Morsi of today. Um, Mossadegh and Iran... He denied British Petroleum a monopoly right. on oil, and it was Kermit Roosevelt of the United States who was involved in certain activities that caused Mosaddegh's downfall. So there was some covert involvement. I don't see covert involvement regarding Egypt. It was one of those things that just sort of happened because of tensions between people who wanted shared power and, like you were mentioning, Zach, regarding the Sharia law from the Muslim Brotherhood, among other policies that people just quite frankly were not for. So there, so there, is, a, so there is a big, big difference. Things are kind of going in reverse, though. People want more shared power as opposed to um, other people being conned or tricked into 
ousting somebody who proclaimed he was pro-America and who Time Magazine had greatly, seemed to greatly admire at You're the talking time. about the Shah. You're talking about the Shah. Mosaddegh. I believe Time Magazine mm-hmm. covered him, didn't they? Well, like the one of the, I'm not quite sure of that, but Mosaddegh, I don't think he could be considered to be pro-American because one of the charges, unfounded uh, uh, charges against him, was that he was uh, in that he was a pro-communist, that he was in league with the communists, and wanting to nationalize the Iranian oil fields is sort of, if you could say, uh, asserting independence away from Western wishes. But no, the Shah of Iran was essentially um, a, a puppet of the West. I mean, uh, Iran had you know economic greater economic growth under the Shah. But Islam was also completely suppressed under his rule. That's why with the 79 revolution, you saw a backlash. You saw the pendulum swinging to to the other end of the spectrum. And to even uh, be clear on this um, situation that's still unfolding in Egypt, a lot of the protests that are being brought into the streets by the Egyptians are being led by um, youth movements who um, are classically liberal and often favor secularist um, political leanings. And so what we're seeing in Egypt, I think, is kind of a contradistinction with regards to Iran. We're not seeing um, political Islam rising in Egypt. Um, I mean, that's... You see a resistance to it. I see a direct resistance to it. Um, but it, it might be too early to even suggest that, considering that we don't have a functioning government or a time frame for elections right. within Egypt. And another thing you bring up about uh, with a lot of youth movements in the Middle East being secular in nature, with the 79 revolution, you had pretty much a coalition force. You had secularists working side by side with Islamists to get out somebody who was essentially a puppet of the West. And after the revolution, the secularists and and the leftists and communists who were involved in the revolution, either had to flee for their lives or were executed. Yes, and what's happening in Egypt right now, um, there are two things happening in Egypt, actually. Uh, when General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi came out with the roadmap uh, that has now been um, popularized and talked to ad nauseum <coughs> at this point, um, he said that he wanted an inclusive government and that he would work directly with Muslim Brotherhood people to make sure that there's some sort of reconciliation that can happen with their constitution, um, with um, with including them within the parliament, with including them within the Egyptian uh, presidential cabinet. Shortly thereafter, the Muslim Brotherhood said that they absolutely had no intentions of working with um, al-Sisi and um, working on the roadmap for this transition. Now, there are some ultra-conservative groups that have similar political ideologies to um, the Muslim Brotherhood, like we already mentioned, the Salafists um, in Egypt, a ultra-conservative um, political party within Egypt, have come out and said they, although they do not recognize um, the legitimacy of this transition, nor do they recognize that Al Baradei is the best candidate to lead this transition, um, they are in direct consultation with the Egyptian military and um, uh, Mansour to work on a 
an effective transition so they can stabilize the country. And uh, we also talked about the economics of, um, of Iran. And now if we look to Egypt, Egypt, one of the primary reasons why um, Mohamed Morsi was taken out of power is that they believe uh, the protesters believed that Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood effectively hijacked the revolution that was happening in Egypt and were not responding to the economic and social problems of citizens. They saw, ever since Morsi stepped into power, real declines in terms of average incomes, and that was only getting worse as days progressed. And so, as soon as Morsi was out of power, um, the Washington Post and uh, and several other agencies um, reported that there were modest gains within stocks, um, some businesses signaling that in the future, if this transition is a little bit smoother, that they will uh, move back into Egypt and uh, possibly create new businesses and start uh, overall helping Egypt's economic situation out. Do you think secularization, a government with no ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, would be the best way to improve economic conditions? Uh, at least economic conditions with the West. Um, the the West has always been kind of um, skeptical about the Muslim Brotherhood. They've been skeptical since at least the 50s um, when the very beginnings of the Muslim Brotherhood started taking off. Um, but I think, it, I think it actually its original origins are in the 20s. Well, right, in the 20s, but I mean, it started fully forming as a political party and actually started gaining legitimacy within the 50s. Um, the United States, as it in the West currently stands right now, have kind of a mixed opinion about how to handle um, about how to handle Egypt. Uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with United States foreign policy on this question, um, the United States currently um, has legislation on the books that said that basically says that if we call this a coup, then we have then immediately trigger sanctions. Currently. We give the Egyptian military $1.2 billion in aid every year. And if we were to call this a coup and denounce it as a coup, it would immediately trigger sanctions. Uh, now, there's some obvious uh, consequences of this. Whatever transition is going to unfold in Egypt will now not be um, possibly monitored very well by the United States because Egypt could potentially deny access to um to the any internal investigations that are happening in Egypt. Um, in addition, the it, it, if a if a stable government was to form, it could be one that speaks directly against U.S. interests in the region, and that could be potentially damning for the United States and the West as it tries to monitor the situation do, do in Egypt think, and the Middle East. Do you think that's likely? I honestly think that the more secular the government, if the new government, potential new government was to arise, the more secular it is, the more willing it would be to cooperate with the West or to have yeah, it would, it would certainly, diplomatic ties. It would certainly cooperate with the United States and it would certainly um, increase economic ties. Um, but at the end of the day, we're talking about whether a country is stable internally. And mm -hmm. I think the United States and the West would be incredibly reluctant to engage a country on a robust economic level if we're changing governments every year. Right. Completely revamping the, the very ways in which we're forming our government and um, creating laws. 
And for those who um, are not in the know, the legislation that was on passed and is on the books is known as the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961. If it was signed by John F. Kennedy, and basically he also issued Executive Order 10973 detailing reorganization. Uh, the the whole gist of it is if if it's referred to as a coup, we have to stop sending them money, which could also have other ramifications. Um, my question here is, with what's been going on, with what was mentioned with Iran, with the Shah taking over after Mossadegh was ousted, does this give pause for thought on providing foreign aid in the first place to other countries, even if it may appear to help our interests? I'm most certain. I hope it does, but I think that's wishful thinking. You know where I tend to stand on foreign policy. My views on foreign policy are more in alignment with Ron Paul, if I, if I was to describe them or, com or compare them to anyone. Sort of, uh, it, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, it, it, one of the things that Ron Paul brought up as far as with an interventionist policy is, you know, with su support to Israel or even actions in, in the Gulf War in 1991, these actions create future jihadists. Not necessarily like as George W. Bush, oh, it's because they hate us because of our freedom. One of the issues Ron Paul brought up, why not attack one of the Scandinavian countries then? You know, in some instances you could say those are countries that are more free in certain aspects than we are. I've never been to the the red light district in Amsterdam, but I think maybe the only thing that's comparable in this country would be something like Vegas. But, um... <clears throat> If uh, I, I hope it to re to rethink about you know a hands off approach might be the best. I think um, a hands off approach to foreign policy immediately. I think it's it's, it, it's sort of pulling out the rug from interest and ties. But if we were to scale back little by little and eventually lead up to dissolving foreign aid to Israel, dissolving foreign aid to Egypt, it, it could be a start. I would have to say um, that I would have to disagree with you on that regard. As it currently stands, uh, in terms of um, real incomes, average Egyptian incomes are declining faster than most uh, people within the Middle East. If we're talking about the question of whether or what actually creates uh, more terrorist organizations or more affiliates, if you look across interviews with um, people who are suspected of terrorism, who we've captured over the years since the prosecution of the war on terrorism, most often the people who are associated are not are not the ones who are um, uh, who are proclaiming to be anti-United States interests or anti-imperialism or things of that nature. What they're signaling is that they have no other choice because the terrorist organization is able to pay them so they can actually provide food for their mm. families. Now, you, that, you bring up a, a relevant issue because if you were to look at uh, how the Taliban came about, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, 
essentially are took advantage of or byproducts of the instability in Afghanistan after the Soviet Afghan War. Right, and a lot so of that I wouldn't completely disagree with what you Right, saying. and a lot of that a lot of current instability in the region, especially in Egypt, is brought on by the declining economic standards of citizens. And between that and not really feeling like they have much of a political say in the game of politics in that country, um, you're as a politician, as a policymaker, you're left wondering what can we do to ameliorate some of these concerns that Egyptians have, or, or uh, some of these people have. Do you have. think one way to do that is through amounts of foreign aid? I do. A lot of countries. a lot of foreign aid isn't given over directly to the governments, and then the governments basically can do whatever they want with a blank check. A lot of foreign aid um, is allocated in ways that get directly in the hands of NGOs and intergovernment organizations that are able to start up small businesses, that are able to do economic activities that would, um, even on a temporary level, hire people who were either displaced because of conflict or displaced because of other reasons and give them some sort of stable income. So now you take away the impetus for these people to go into these terrorist organizations basically to earn an income so they can feed their families. I think that's what you do with foreign well, aid. I don't even necessarily think as far as entering so-called terrorist organizations to earn an income, but um, a, a better educated populace, a financially stable populace, are less likely to, uh, to, to fall for, you know, extremism. If in, the, in the early 80s in America, you know, 81 to 83, you had a recession. That period of the early 80s saw a, a rise of white supremacist groups in the U.S., people like uh, Robert Matthews and the Order and Tom Metzger and White Aryan Resistance. So people who are living in poverty, it's, it's the perfect incubator for these types of extremist ideologies. Yeah, in a, in a, in a phrase, the economic hardships of people uh, absolutely breed political volatility because now the question of, economics and politics becomes a rather conflated issue and a lot of people are are not um they 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 tie those two issues together and once they tie those two issues together whatever happens one way or another now becomes a strong motivator to commit acts of violence in egypt in israel like you mentioned uh mitchell um i believe that we that as the united states if we want to maintain our strategic footing within the middle east that now more than ever, these countries need foreign aid or at least reassurance by the United States that we will stand behind them. Now, in the case of Egypt, where we have an overthrowing of the government, mm -hmm. I think the United States stands to benefit by calling it a coup. Mm -hmm. uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with how, how the West has responded to what is happening in Egypt, the United States, President Obama has yet to signal that this is a coup. Um, and those are, uh, the reasons are multiple, but a lot of them come down to politics and the politics of sanctions, really. If we call it a coup, it immediately triggers economic sanctions. If the United States were to call it a coup, then more countries and more regions, um, such as the big actors in the European Union, um, within Asia might also call it what it, what I think it is. And it's a coup. It's what it is. Um, and so how, how long can we sort of hold off until the bow breaks by saying 
this isn't what it is. I think the bow is already breaking. As far I as mean, as far as the, just with the issue of Western involvement and the issue of sanctions. I think every day that the United States and the West doesn't call this what it is is another day that we lose in terms of promoting human rights and um, and political institutions across the world. But bringing up the issue of, of foreign aid and support to uh, financial support in the Middle East. I think there's there's a great lesson to be learned from the funding of the Mujahideen. Whether people want, are aware of it, I want to acknowledge that our own government had a hand in the creation of the Taliban, whether it was haphazardly at the time to, you know, to, to fight the Soviets, and it's, a, it's an unintended, unintended consequence of that, but I think there's... A, so whenever people talk about sending money to because if it's not just for food and for infrastructure but as far as for arms who are those arms going to what causes are they fighting for i think that is the the lessons learned from funding the mujahideen should be learned to be skeptical about who the us sends money and aid to and i think under the obama administration um they've done somewhat of an effective job in terms of reevaluating how they distribute foreign aid if we look at the case of Syria, where the Syrian rebels um, have been um, fighting Bashar al-Assad for, I think it's what, over close to three years, if not over three years, right. um, the United States and the West was very reluctant to give foreign aid to the rebels directly in terms of lethal assistance. Um, that means guns, ammo, etc. Um, they've been very reluctant to give that lethal assistance because I think we're slowly very slowly, but surely trying to uh, remember the last episode that we did this, where we bundled um, guns and ammunition and uh, and funds to the Mujahideen, and it later came back to bite or us. Or even if you wanted to look into outside of the Middle East, another, another, another chapter, or the funding of the Contras. That's also right. a, horrific, a horrific chapter of what's had of the U.S. playing like essentially the role of Dr. Frankenstein. Right. And uh and again when we w and we before we initially started fighting the Khmer Rouge, we were also giving them funds because they showed that they were going to be privy to at least listening to the United States contrary to having a diametrically opposed <clears throat> political ideology. And then again, when we were in Southeast Asia, we were fighting the Khmer Rouge. Uh so I think now the Obama administration is learning the um, learning the lessons from, and I think the West ultimately is learning the lessons from all these episodes where we funneled money to these organizations, and effectively, uh, that those money, that money, those um, guns, that ammo was turned on the United States and the West. Nowadays, in Syria and other countries where they are, um, where evidence is showing that these governments are using biological and chemical weapons against them. United States and the West has retooled what they're doing to provide lethal assistance instead of just food aid, medical aid, etc. And not to throw gasoline on the fire. Go ahead. You were, you were mentioning unintended consequences. It reminds me of the proxy wars with with Russia. We didn't fight Russia directly. A lot of those people that were funded in opposition to the Russians also would go on to form Al-Qaeda, which, again, 
came back to haunt us. Uh, ben Laden, at the time, was one of our allies. He was right there on the front line, shooting out with the Russians. I think he was really young. I think he was in his late teens or early 20s yes. when that happened. And the thing is, that's, that's for people who don't know the reference when Ron Paul was campaigning for president, saying why certain events happened against us, and he basically stated it's because we've been over there bombing them. We're, we've been making all these enemies, and that's the unintended consequences that we mentioned before. You had the, you had the installation of the Shah, who suppressed certain types of religious ideology, which came back to haunt us. Um, one of the things that people argue is, oh, well, we can't isolate ourselves from the world. We're some people like me, people like Mitchell, don't necessarily argue a complete isolationist policy. By all means, talk to another country, trade with them, but don't just give them money. Don't entangle ourselves in their affairs, because then we begin entangling ourselves in other countries' affairs on top of that. We don't just fund Israel, we fund Egypt, which is one of the opposing forces, in a sense, to Israel as well. But they had a peace treaty developed in the 70s, so it's not as much of a quote-unquote enemy as some of the other Arab nations. Uh, one question I wanted to pose to you all is um, how the United States would look in the event that the United States and the West has come out and signaled of this coup. I mean, remember that when Hosni Mubarak was in power, the United States didn't cut off its um, military aid. In fact, uh, military aid to Egypt only increased over the decades. We never we never signaled that what Hosni Mubarak did was effectively a coup and cut off a, a total assistance. If the United States were to call this a coup, what would it do for the United States' image in terms of the promotion of political institutions and human rights, in not only in the region but also in our future um, in our future arenas where we're trying to promote these ideas? What what ideas specifically, as far as just well, like the United States, human rights? Yeah, the United States is trying to, um, with the war on terrorism, has also been on a massive um, democracy promotion campaign in the Middle East, um, trying to bring in more actors into the political process. I, I, I totally disagree with that, and I think I think it's a flawed ef effort. You know, if you would, Richard Kip, you know, last name Kipling, Rudvik Kipling, or so, you know, the white man's burden, that poem... I uh, I totally disagree with that. I think it's it's a ghost of colonialism and imperialism, and I think it's flawed to do so because democracy, a stable democracy, I feel can only be, and I think history will show this, can be maintained through an internal force, not an external force. Uh, so if if we were look look at Iraq, did the the, the the war on terror produce a democratic republic in Iraq that resembles the U.S. No, because I think you're you're looking at a cultural factors. I think in the case of the Middle East, you're looking at religious factors. In, to where in some nations, a, a democratic republic necessarily won't take hold, despite whatever efforts 
from the U.S. or the West in general. But what do you what do you believe would happen if the United States or the or just more Western nations called this a coup? What do you think would happen to the United States campaigns to promote democracy and human rights in the Middle East and the world? I think it's it it's it just essentially call it like a coup. It's it's telling it like it is. I mean, I think for, for those who think that the U.S. or the the U.S. representatives speak with a forked tongue, maybe it could show, oh, they don't. It's telling, it's it's actually, you know, realizing what the situation is. I mean, that's just sort of my, like, off-the-top-of-the-head answer. It could be a mixed bag. Some countries who have an issue with the U.S. would basically say, oh, look, they're being hypocrites. They, they funded, they kept funding Egypt, when the last guy was being gotten rid of, and now they're changing their mind on this guy, um, maybe it's be- maybe it's because it wasn't their man in power. But on the other hand, there is this issue of colonialism, I think, that we all have to conquer within ourselves. And we need to be reminded of it in history. Our country, it was people within this country, within 13 colonies that fostered the ideas of being independent from Great Britain. Yes, you had French helping us in the end, but that was because they already had an existing problem with Great Britain. But you notice when the French Revolution happened, there was no U.S. involvement, and it was on a practical scale as well, because the United States was a new country, did not have the resources, and plus, getting involved in that country would very well have ended the United States. So, there was this recognition that they need to work out their own affairs. We were able, at the time, to work out our own internal issues by having a constitutional convention, getting rid of the Articles of Confederation, realized that it didn't work, there needed to be some centralized authority in the event that some external force were to come and try to do something with the country, good or bad, while respecting regional areas, the states, in that regard. So, it's a mixed bag on how the world stage will respond. I personally am along the lines with Mitchell, stay out of these countries' affairs, let them, we're pouring gasoline on the fire by providing money one way or another, let the, let the other countries resolve their own issues. Even in Israel, Israeli citizens oppose a good number of what their own government does, and they're even for cutting off aid to their own military because they feel their own military should be capable of protecting the country do, right you, now. do you think that's a general consensus? Because, I mean, you're throwing that out there as a general statement, there, but I think when it comes I, to... I, the, do, I do know there are Israeli citizens who are... In any country, you're going to have people who disagree with their own government. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that... But there's a difference between disagreeing with their government and somebody being... In a, in a hot zone and saying, no, I don't want the IDF to do their thing. I don't want those tanks there. 
because like even Ron Paul had stated, you know, take the kid gloves off. Israel has its own military that's competent. Let them defend themselves. And those sorts of things. And you get to the point where you have to ask, okay, are we really doing this out of the goodness of our hearts, or are we doing this just to play politics at this point? And I lean towards the latter. It's to play politics. Well, it's, it's well, support of Israel itself, it's residue from a Cold War policy. And with so much of uh, you know, when the with so much with we we exist in a different paradigm now. We don't have a Cold War paradigm, but some of the strategies we're using are Cold War strategies. So, um, what I say with cutting off aid to to certain nations or scaling back, uh, you know, interventionist policy, it's let's turn the page and let's let's try something else that might work because we're in a different age. Especially since giving money to other countries puts this country deeper and deeper into debt in the first place. So it would be your all's contention that we'll call it a coup and we should effectively cut off at least some aid to Egypt. Uh, yeah, I'd be willing to entertain that. But also, to it, I think also to have a, a consistent line, I think it would also have to be scaled back to other nations. Because I think for people who are sort of, you know, the human rights watch type of people like what you've brought up before. It's like, wait a minute, you're giving money to this despot, but you scaled back from this despot over over here. I think the way to eliminate that argument, and it might sound kind of like an iron-fisted type of uh, solution, cut off all aid. Then that argument doesn't exist. Of You're not funding any despot. You're not funding... Any dictator. I think what would happen, though, is that you would see the slow but uh, perpetual unraveling of the United States' legitimacy in international affairs, at least with regards to promoting democracy and human rights. But in the, but in the eyes of so many nations, especially dur during the Bush administration, that walk doesn't match that talk. There's already an, an inconsistency. So I see it as a way to improve the U.S. standing not further harm it. I think I think it's an act to clean up damage that's been done, whether it's by the Bush administration or by, you know, the continuation of a Cold War policy. Um, and keep in mind, again, when we give money to countries, and in terms of, you know, federal aid, a lot of your federal programs with a few exceptions, when that money is set aside for that, Citizens are not directly taxed for a country to popular belief. That money is borrowed from the Federal Reserve at interest, which has to be paid back subsequently through federal taxes. So when we give money to other countries, we're putting ourselves deeper and deeper into debt. The, with the way our monetary system works, the more money is in circulation, the less that it is worth. And you have countries like China looking at the U.S. dollar, and other countries look at the U.S. dollar with a nervous glance because our dollar goes down as the world reserve currency. Uh, that can have dire ramifications upon the global economy. If we pull back aid in that regard and take care of our own internal house and our own internal affairs in terms of debt and things of that nature, that very well look more responsible to the whole world. 
And I know we, we keep going over, don't we? Yes. But this was such a good discussion, too. It's not too bad. Um, final thoughts real quick, because this, <laughs> this keeps happening. Um, and everything else, so. Final thoughts, anybody? Yeah, um, I think the United States, um, I think the United States needs to probably ultimately call this a coup, um, and in this particular circumstance, start withdrawing some of their funds for Egypt, and at least on the condition until a stable government transpires out of these national protests. Um, until then, I think the United States and the West would probably, um, they, they, they are going to be basically on the heels of this until something gets resolved. Um, but I think ultimately the United States and the West needs to maintain its strategy, its meta strategy within the Middle East. Otherwise, it'll see a global unraveling of its human rights and democracy promotion campaigns. Mitchell, your final thoughts on this? I don't fully agree. <laughs> uh, one thing I think as far as uh, the cycle, as far as you see, it's just like, I think the turmoil in Egypt raises the question of are there some nations, because of the history of how they've been governed or other factors, can they actually maintain a democracy? I think the question, a valid question that arises from how long was Morsi in power for? Two, not, e no, not know, even... Less than a year. Less, less than a year, and boom, it's back to turmoil. So are we going to see turmoil leads to more turmoil, leads to another cycle of turmoil? I don't know. My th final thoughts on this is, you know, I'm a big picture person, mostly, as you both have seen. And, and, yeah, and, um, so, what I'm saying is, maybe we should step back, and maybe we should do the one thing that actually caused us to be admired in the world by setting the example in the first place and not necessarily telling other countries what to do, taking care of our own issues. Um, that That's my final thoughts on this. So, so um, I will close this out. Um, do you have an opinion? Uh, let us know. You should. What? Let your voice be heard. If you have an opinion, <laughs> don't hold your tongue. <laughs> that really gets on my nerves. Um, so, thenextreport.com is our website. We're all over the place on social networks and what have you. Uh, entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself. Uh, join us on our fan page, Google+. Let us know what you think about this topic. And we'll see you next week. This has been another exciting episode of The Next Report Podcast with your hosts Thomas Holbrook II, Mitchell Brown and Zach Dodson. Our website is thenextreport.com where you may view show notes and listen to our other podcasts as well as consume other content. The intro to the show is from J.T. Bruce's Plunge into Hyperreality, a part of his album Dreamer's Paradox, available under Creative Commons at gemendo.com. We are on other social networks such as YouTube, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Google+. Remember to entertain yourself, educate yourself, and empower yourself.